This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Altham from New Matilda joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, Professor Tonya Eckfeld, a Principal Fellow at the University of Melbourne and a Distinguished Research Fellow at Northwestern Polytechnical University in Xi'an, China, joined me in the studio to talk about the NGV International's exhibition, Terracotta Warriors, Guardians of Immortality, as well as the accompanying artworks by contemporary Chinese artist Sai Guo Chiang. We'd also talked about the Qing Dynasty. Then, finally, Professor Andrew Walter, who is based at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, joined me in the studio to talk about the latest in UK politics, as well as what's up with Brexit. I'm pleased now to have with me in the studio Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he's here to discuss federal politics the week that was um, in in federal politics and there was a lot that happened particularly last week it was um, some pretty shocking things going on and if you are on Twitter you might have even seen the event live tweeted so we'll get uh, to that in a sec. Hi there Ben. Good morning how are you? Morning I'm good how are you doing? I'm good thank you. That's good Um, so Ben let's just head straight into it. The Australian Federal Police have conducted two raids that were very public last week and also in succession one uh, i think it was on tuesday and the next on wednesday yeah um, or was it monday monday and tuesday i can't remember now Um, it feels like years ago but it wasn't yeah so first off annika smithhurst the federal politics correspondent for news corporation was raided in fact her home was raided and the seven police spent seven hours inside her house searching through oh basically her underwear drawer behind her paintings you (laughs) know cookbooks her cookbooks yes opening all the pages of all the books in her library Uh, she got (laughs) the special treatment Um, i wonder if they tidied up after themselves yeah if it's like any raid that i've ever attended i doubt that sincerely Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) i won't go into my backstory there but um uh, and then followed up um, the next day with a highly public raid of the abc offices in ultimo in sydney um, with a number of federal police rocking up there to abc hq and going through the afghan files carefully looking for leads there for who leaked uh, top secret information about australian special forces atrocities in afghanistan what was the Annika smithhurst raid about that was about another national security leak um, in that case um, information that the security agencies were looking to embark on a widespread surveillance program of Australian citizens. Um, so, I mean, I mean, two very worrying developments mm. in terms of uh, media freedom in Australia, directly related to our deep state, if you like, our security state, the security agencies, the Defence Department, um, and obviously senior members of the government. Uh, and then, and, and you know, and and media outlets have been raided. And I think what that shows is basically a couple of things. Firstly, it shows that this government has been emboldened to uh, progress on on a pretty firm security agenda since 
winning re-election. Uh, it also shows, I think, the creep of security law in Australia, how far things have got since 9-11 uh, when, you know, we've had something like 66 new pieces of national security legislation passed by the parliament. They've radically wound back the civil liberties in this country. They've made Australia fundamentally less free. Um, and as we're now finding out, um, there's really wide scope for the security agencies and the federal police to act on investigations to raid media, to prosecute whistleblowers. We currently have a lawyer for a whistleblower up on charges Mm. in um, the federal court um, simply for representing a whistleblower. I mean, that's a a particularly concerning development. We literally have a secret trial underway uh, at the moment. It's quite... it is a little bit shocking unless you followed this, um, as some of us have for years and years and years, because people like Scott Ludlam, for example, the former Green Senator, have been warning about this, uh, Digital Rights Australia. A lot of the civil liberties groups have been telling us for a long time now that this stuff has been going on, but these two raids have obviously brought those concerns to the very forefront. Exactly, and the um, the warrant that John Lyons, who's head of investigations at ABC, tweeted for everyone to see is so broad in terms of the areas that uh, the files could be taken from. And uh, I think they pulled out over 9,000 files to begin with and then had to go file by file to um, deem whether it was necessary or not to take and whether it was relevant. And, I mean, that's a pretty shocking thing. I think they eventually took over 100 files, which now it will be kept under seal for two weeks from that the date of the warrant being um, executed. And, of course, the ABC has been coming out pretty strongly against this raid, saying that really you can't um, say that this is all about national security when in fact these two topics or two stories are more about um, whether it's embarrassing for the government or not to have had these things happen rather than you know, revealing state secrets on the ABC or in News Corp papers. Absolutely. I mean, what were these two stories about? One was about Uh, the overreach of our security agencies attempting an even wider surveillance dragnet of Australian citizens. The other was about uh, atrocities and war crimes in Afghanistan conducted by Australian forces. Two stories manifestly in the public interest uh, and also two stories deeply embarrassing to the government and the security agencies themselves. Uh, so, you know, I think I think this is really... This is not about national security. This no. is all about politics. Uh, and this is all about the increasingly wide powers of our security agencies. And I think also a political determination by those agencies to use that power to intimidate critics, um, to intimidate whistleblowers and to make people... To really make an example of uh, these two whistleblowers, I think, and to make sure people don't think about disclosing any information in the future. Exactly. And it was interesting uh, that the AFP's acting commissioner came out to talk to media because they obviously may not have understood that it would cause such (laughs) public outcry. And uh, he did say that he hadn't ruled out or they weren't ruling out um, charges against the journalists themselves. That's right, he did. He refused to rule out charges against the journalists. It was quite an extraordinary press conference by Assistant Commissioner Gagan uh, where he sort of stood up there and and bluffly rebuffed the all of the questions from journalists basically saying well no 
this this is the law, this is the law that the legislature has passed and we will enforce the law as federal police. And I think um, on the one hand, yes, he was just doing his job, but on the other hand, I think it was a, a chilling insight into the mentality of our federal police and our national security agencies. They do see the release of information as uh, something that should be opposed under pretty much all circumstances. They do see whistleblowers in the media as enemies. Uh, and, I, and I think we're entering into some pretty dangerous territory as a democracy, actually. Indeed. Um, we should also focus on the fact that laws exist uh, for this to actually happen. The AFP are utilising laws that are available to them in order to have um, search warrants and they're carrying them out in these two cases. They um, dropped an investigation on a leak on another topic and that has also been remarked upon. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to point out is that the law that they're using to conduct these raids is a very old law. It's the Crimes Act that originally goes back to 1914. And um, it's since been updated. It's since been updated. But but I think what it shows is that there's a wide discretion um, about the way that the federal police uh, decides to investigate and decides to enforce this law. And we saw that particularly this last week, late last week, where the federal police announced that they were abandoning investigation into who leaked the news of the raid into the Australian Workers' Union from Michaelia Cash's office. Now, that had been under federal police investigation. There were no raids by the federal police in that investigation. They didn't rock up to Michaelia Cash's office or house Mm. um, and investigate there. Um, instead, they simply called off the investigation. And I think that shows that there's a wide amount of discretion here by the federal police about what they decide to and what they don't decide to investigate. And, and uh, that just, to me, uh, raises more questions, really, more questions. We also found out yesterday that the referral of the Annika Smithhurst raid came originally from the Department of Defence, the Secretary of the Department of Defence. So a senior public servant was the person who called in the police over that raid. I think that's concerning. Uh, And then we had Maurice Payne, who was then the Defence Minister, say that she didn't know about it. That beggars belief. Like, Mm. how is the Director General of Defence not telling the responsible minister that he's called in the police to potentially investigate a whistleblower and a journalist? There's all sorts of questions that, that need to be answered. You know, and taking a step back, you know, these raids have generated a lot of international interest, actually. We've had articles in the New York Times. We've had statements of support for the ABC from the BBC. Uh, mm. international Written obs- and phone calls. <laughs> inter- yeah, international observers are pretty shocked, actually. They saw those photos of a whole bunch of federal police in their shirt sleeves and ties eating sandwiches while going through the ABC's email servers, and I think they, they found that a little bit confronting you know the fact that Australian police are going through the underwear drawer of a top news corp journalist I think sends shivers down the spine of anyone who's who's interested in a free society Uh, you know and I I think as usual the media have responded in a fairly self-interested way so a lot of the media commentary has been about oh oh they're investigating journalists oh (laughs) this is terrible we need to be really worried you know and of course civil libertarians and lawyers and people who've been looking at this stuff for years 
need to remind the media mm. that these laws apply far more strictly and far more stringently on civil actors in our society, on you know people who are simply blowing the whistle on wrongdoing inside the government. They're the ones who are actually facing charges and jail time here. Uh, like David McBride, for example, the former army lawyer who first disclosed the information of the war crimes in Afghanistan. He's basically he's, he's undergoing what could only be described as a star chamber process where he's up for trial. The trial will be in secret. Essentially, um, we won't know most of the evidence that will be presented at that trial. I mean, it's quite mm. an extraordinary situation. It is. It reminds me of um, Guantanamo Bay and the military system of justice that Americans have over there where it is also secret and we won't know what happened. It's arguably worse than that because at least the Guantanamo process is a military tribunal and not... No, there's no pretense that it's part of civil criminal law, but in Australia, mm. this is this is absolutely part of our ordinary criminal system, um, simply with most of the checks and balances removed. You know, so I think I think we do need uh, reform badly in need of reform, and, and a number of people have put forward suggestions for how we could strengthen media freedoms and wind back some of the security state. But the responsibility really needs to rebound back on our politicians who passed all these laws over the last. 17 years you know they're the people that we really need to ask why did you ignore all the warnings that people constantly gave you you know i mean the greens in particular were very principled about these matters in the upper house and so were the independents in the lower house saying that this was a overreach this was a creep of the security powers that would eventually lead to events like the ones that we saw last week and that would make Australia less free. It would be, in fact, bad for our national security mm. in the long term. Uh, really, we've heard, we've heard nothing but more bluster from Peter Dutton and from Scott Morrison. I think we are, we are seeing a little bit of remorse from the Labor Party, who's been in lockstep with the government on national security really for six years since losing office. And I do think that Labor needs to reflect very strongly on what they've passed. Even when, for example, in the Assistance and Access Bill, where they said they had grave concerns over that bill shortly before last Christmas, but they passed it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, no wonder there's, there's a bunch of bad legislation on the books if that's the actions that the opposition's going to take. It's very true. And in terms of the response of the two sides, the uh, Liberal Party was on pretty much MIA for a lot of the time. Everyone was trying to ask them, what do you think about press freedom? Do you still support it given the current uh, behaviour and actions of the AFP? And then Labor, of course, uh, Christina Keneally, who is the um, deputy or well, shadow of the Home Affairs portfolio, among other things, uh, kind of gave a bit of a weak statement initially and didn't really provide a strong kind of pushback. She was saying, we just need um, Peter Dutton to explain himself and to give a statement. And there wasn't really a strong position. We've since seen Anthony Albanese, the um, opposition leader, have a, a much stronger line, which is nice. And then over the weekend, Richard Miles on Insiders um, pretty much got quite stuck in a corner because of, as you said, Labor's past history basically waving through most of the national security um, legislation and and his argument was, oh, but Labor was always there putting forward amendments to protect civil liberties. But I think it's a pretty (laughs) poor argument, isn't it, Ben? Ah, dear Richard Miles. That won't be the first or the last (laughs) time we'll see Richard Miles paint himself into a corner. Uh, But, you know, you're right, of course, you know, Labor's record on this stuff is there for all to be seen. You can look back at what they've passed over the last, you know, period in government, you know, um, 
they passed the metadata Re- retention act you know that was a that La- labor voted for that it was bipartisan support for that bill uh labor has passed along with the coalition 66 pieces of national security legislation since 2001 so uh, are all of them bad no they're not all bad but are all of them necessary of course not you know uh, most of those pieces of legislation were fundamentally political in their nature they were about wedging labor and labor to in, in order to stop being wedged in many cases simply rolled over and voted for them and i think like the most craving example was the assistance and access bill that i mentioned but the metadata retention act is terrible as well mm. because that's the one that allows people that allows the security agencies no fewer than 21 security agencies including state police to freely surveil phones of anyone in Australian society, uh, you know, phones and emails. Uh, And of course, this is how they're going to catch whistleblowers and prosecute them. So, I mean, I guess we have to bring up Witness K and Bernard Caleri in this discussion. Uh, Witness K is a whistleblower from inside the Australian Security Agency who blew the whistle on the bugging of the East Timorese government by the Australian Security Intelligence Service. Why did we bug them? Not because of any national security matter, in fact. In fact, to assist Australia in an oil negotiation. We were negotiating with the East Timorese government over oil rights in the Timor Sea and we bugged them. You know, like, that that to me shows exactly why we need whistleblowers. Mm. We need to know about what our spies get up to when no one's looking. Uh, who watches the watches, etc., etc. And in retaliation for that, I think, very noble deed... Uh, in the public interest, this fellow, Witness K, is facing long time in jail um, in a secret trial that the media is not allowed to report on. And just to top matters off, his lawyer, Bernard Colleri, is also being prosecuted by the federal government. I mean, it's it's bad. It is bad. Um, one other whistleblower we should mention is um, Richard Boyle, who is also facing um, potentially a very long prison sentence as well. In, it could be about 161 years, depending on whether he was found guilty or not. Yeah, and now Richard Boyle has disclosed actions by the tax office. Now, we obviously agree that people should pay their taxes and that the tax office should pursue people who aren't paying their taxes, but Boyle raised some very legitimate concerns about the actions of the tax office in garnishing uh, bank accounts from people that it was investigating and essentially shutting down small businesses peremptorily without judicial review. And as a result of that, he's been pursued by the federal government. And yes, you're right, he's up for potentially 161 years in jail. That's an extraordinary action by the federal government to pursue one of its critics acting Mm. in good faith. And, you know, we have these so-called shield laws. We have a whistleblower protection law it's clearly not working, is it? Like, why hasn't that law prevented Richard Boyle from being charged? I mean, I think that's a really, really interesting point. We'll have to talk to the lawyers about that, I guess. But I noticed that Professor AJ Brown from Griffith, who's um, heading up a transparency initiative up at Griffith University, he's made the point, too, that the shield law clearly isn't working because how could it be working if these whistleblowers Mm. were being prosecuted? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Ben, just to finish off, the tax cut 
package that the coalition really led with in terms of uh, the federal election campaign is continuing and we're seeing uh, very gradually the position of various other politicians, particularly in the Senate, in the crossbenches and One Nation leader Pauline Hanson has kind of signalled that she wouldn't support the final tranche of tax cuts which would go to the very, very wealthy. Um, what do you think is going to happen based on that we're seeing the fact that the government's saying, well, we have a mandate and it's trying to wedge labour and say you need to support all of the stages, one, two and three. You can't break it down into segments over you know, the next four years or so. Um, where are we at in terms of the negotiations around that? Well, I think we're at the beginning of the negotiations rather than the end. I think this will be a very long-running problem for the government. Um, Anthony Albanese has promised to pass the first tranche straight away. So if the government wants an easy win, it could do that immediately. Of course, the government is holding out to pass the entire four years of tax cuts, including the extremely lucrative flattening of the tax system that will radically increase Australian inequality. So... The Labor Party at the moment doesn't support that final tranche and it'll be really interesting to see if the Labor Party rolls over on that under pressure or whether it can use the blowtorch, turn the blowtorch back on the coalition because the economy's in trouble, mm. as we saw from a number of pieces of economic data that came out last week. The economy is slowing, uh, it, house prices are bottoming out, uh, unemployment is starting to trend up, inflation is low, growth is in the toilet. So the, yeah. the economy is in trouble. Um, so the government really needs to get those tax cuts out as a stimulus. So I think it's a really tricky, interesting negotiation. Um, I'm expecting Pauline Hanson to eventually backflip because she generally does and she will eventually vote for the government. But the government still needs the centre alliance on side. People like Rex Patrick, the, uh, the senator. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, he's been monstered by the national security apparatus as well. He got a phone call from Mike Pizzullo, the very powerful uh, secretary of the Home Affairs Department. Apparently, he was not very happy with some of the things that that uh, Rex said in an interview to the ABC. So I think that sort of shows just wow. how far the kind of these guys feel like they can operate. You know, that's they pretty could, astounding. They can start ringing up cross-party senators and say, "Hey, stop saying no- naughty things about me on the on the <laughs> ABC." <laughs> I think I heard that um, interview, and I don't. Th- to me, it was not very controversial at all. I mean, I think it is time to talk about Mike Pizzullo and the immense amount of power that he's gathered to his his person as the secretary of that department and the constant bungling and incompetence that's gone on on his watch and just the amount of... Just really the fact that a fellow like this, a, a sort of senior public service, seems to have far too much power, really. Um, aided and abetted, of course, by Peter Dutton, the Home Affairs Minister. Indeed. And um, Ben, just finally, we should mention the emissions data has finally been released. It <laughs> yeah. took so long. And uh, it they kind of snuck it in there in the Australian in a puff piece um, in an interview with the Emissions Reduction Minister, Angus Taylor. Uh, what did our emissions data tell us? <clears throat> Australian emissions are still going up. In fact, they're the highest on record. And nothing shows the contempt for climate action of this government, this government's contempt for the notion of doing something about climate change like things like this. I mean, playing politics with this incredibly important news. But, of course, 
it's the government they don't care about climate change we know they don't care about climate change they're kind of throwing it in our face really they're kind of thumbing their nose at us really for those of us who believe in doing something about i don't know the future of human civilization uh so yeah i mean it's a it's a tremendously disappointing and depressing action from uh I think, you know, uh, an energy minister who, who really, uh, I think, it is, is basically acting like a climate denialist. I mean, you know, Angus Taylor as the energy minister, I mean, he's already doing a large amount of damage to the future of Australia. And it, it, there's going to be three more years of this, Amy. Oh, I know. Strap yourself in. <laughs> it's very disturbing when you put it that way, Ben. Uh, thanks for coming in to talk federal politics. And as you said, we've got three years to do it. So Can't wait. <laughs> I've been speaking with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Now, I'm so excited to get to speak about the next topic with a very special guest, Professor Tonya Eckfield, who is a Principal Fellow at the University of Melbourne in the School of uh, Historical and Philosophical Studies, one of my favourite. She's also associated with a wonderful centre at the university called the Grimwade Centre, which we'll, um, I guess, give more context for in a minute. And then... uh, I'm also very uh, pleased to hear that Professor Tonya Eckfeld has been uh, just announced as a Distinguished Research Fellow at Northwestern Polytechnical University in Xi'an in China. So uh, obviously Tonya has a a huge amount of um, expertise that she'll be drawing on today that we're talking about in particular a wonderful exhibition on at the National Gallery of Victoria in the international space on St Kilda Road. It is uh, China's terracotta army from the Qin Dynasty and uh, it also features the work of a wonderful contemporary artist from uh, mainland China, uh, Sai Guoqiang, and he's done a beautiful, oh, a, a number of beautiful works which um, really surround the space and uh, certainly add a lot to the ancient artefacts that we see from the Qin dynasty. So I welcome uh, Professor Tonya Eckfeld now. Hi there, Tonya. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Um, so there's a lot to uh, to cover off and maybe perhaps people listening in don't know much about the Qin dynasty. Um, I am really interested to get a better understanding of where we're placed in history in terms of the timeline of um, history and how we can, I guess, understand the, the level of age, the ancientness, if that's a word, to, of the things, the artefacts and items that we'll be talking about. And, of course, the National Gallery's exhibition, the, one of the main events, of course, is the Terracotta Army, and uh, they are quite... Um, commanding, I guess, pieces and two uh, massive um, life-size, pretty much, or if not bigger, uh, warriors. So in terms of the, the Qin dynasty, I believe it is one of the earliest in the timeline of dynasties across Chinese history. Uh, how can we understand where this is situated, not only in Chinese uh, history but also in global history? Well, we're looking at a dynasty that's 2,200 years old. So it's equivalent to the classical era in Europe. So we're talking about ancient Greece and Rome. And the Qin dynasty is really the beginning of 
China as we know it, where we've got a single unified empire and it takes up that huge landmass, uh, very similar to the area that China occupies today. Well, that's pretty uh, interesting. And it's also interesting that the Qin dynasty uh, wasn't particularly as long-lived as some of the others, and people have contrasted it with the Han dynasty. That's right. Um, we, you know, you've indicated that really the Qin is probably... It's a really uh, the most important dynasty in the sense that it, it, it identifies really China. It's the beginning of China as an empire. But, yeah, you've pointed out it's, it is actually the shortest dynasty of all. It only lasted um, 14 years. So it's incredibly short but incredibly important. So it did exist in other forms before it became the great empire and for, uh, for about five centuries before it, it formed a dynasty, it, it did occupy a big kingdom and a very important kingdom um, in that area. Mm. And um, in terms of the the scope of uh, the Qin Dynasty and I guess the size of the territory that eventually uh, encompassed the Qin Dynasty, we saw obviously the emperor of that uh, dynasty, Qin Shi Huang, who uh, came to the throne at age 13 and was really very much about expanding the territories uh, that he really had um I guess, rulership or emperorship over. That's right. He'd inherited the, the throne at the age of 13, so he'd been born a prince. Um, and he, he at that time, with the kingdom that he um, inherited was one of seven huge kingdoms occupying that area that we now know as China. Um, that period, called the Warring States period, lasted for about 250 years. And thanks to Qin Shi Huang and really his... Um, martial efforts for a period of 25 years all seven kingdoms um, were dissolved and Qin was victorious so he formed a great empire um, by the age of about 38. Yes exactly and we're talking about um, 221 BCE so uh, it's a, a bit of a important achievement I guess to be at that time amassing more and more uh, territories or kingdoms it is as you say kind of an early stage of the Chinese empire and a building of an empire Um, what kinds of people were included in those kingdoms in terms of I guess their region or ethnicity um well, interestingly, the Qin people themselves were from the far west of the Chinese uh, empire, what, be- what became the Chinese empire. And current thinking is that they may have originally come from even, even further west. So there was a diversity of peoples and a diversity of uh, ruling systems and um, cultures. Um, so the Qin, the Qin dynasty was really important in unifying many of the kind of basic systems that have lasted through the present day. So although short-lived only 14 years, the impact has been really, really huge. Um, Qin Shi Huang ordered the standardisation of currency, of weights and measures, of written script, of things like axle widths, um, and he completed colossal infrastructure projects. So we know about the Great Wall. Um, mm. There were many walls in that in the, across what became China, um, and Qin Shi Huang demolished many of those and set the walls at the borders uh, to both unify China and also um, improve its defences. He built superhighways, canals, um, palaces, and of course his tomb. Um, so, really. 
that enabled um, a very efficient economy and uh, very efficient transport that was both uh, was good both militarily and also for um, you know the well-being of the people in terms of food distribution uh, and so on mm. and um, this kind of time in Chinese history is known for its spirituality as well and that's pretty clear in the exhibition is there are a whole range of artifacts that are of I guess um, divine creatures or different creatures not human uh what are some of those really interesting um iconographies or symbols before and after or during the Qin dynasty well i think the most important thing is the tomb itself really that's the biggest symbol of all um and it shows the importance that people placed on the on the afterlife and the sense of the soul living on so um they believed in the here and now but they also believed in um the spiritual plane and the impact of of ancestors and um and so on so what is that what is that understanding i mean there's a lot of discussion around this emperor thinking about immortality is that a way of becoming immortal it is a way of becoming immortal and i would say that was a big issue for him during those 25 years of fighting uh he never knew when he might be killed so uh the the um, afterlife for his soul, so his eternal life, would have been on his mind, mm. uh, and the tomb was a was a necessity for that. It's a really, really huge complex. It's f- more than fifty six square kilometres. So I have the feeling that um, he really was establishing also sort of a, a precinct for a very long lasting dynasty. He didn't expect it would only last fourteen years. He was setting up something that would last centuries and um, probably he expected the subsequent generations would live there as well Um, and the tomb had everything that he would have had above in his normal life uh, that existed at the at the tomb site it was like a kind of a parallel universe mirroring the real world but underground it's pretty astounding to imagine. You just said 56 kilometres. I mean, that's a huge amount yeah. of real estate. That is. Um, it, as you said, it was discovered only in modern times in the 20th century in 1974 when local farmers were digging an irrigation well in Lintong District in Xi'an. Uh, I believe you've been to the uh, excavation site and have been part of different efforts. That's right. It's uh, the... the um Chin Shi Huang's tomb has been part of my life for a long time. So when I was at, I was at school, I was very interested and followed the discovery um, in, through the 70s and um, in, was lucky enough to visit in the 80s. And then in the 90s, developed a very close working relationship with the Shanxi Provincial Institute of Archaeology. So that gave me uh, unprecedented access to excavation sites. And I was very fortunate that whenever there were new discoveries, I was able to go to those restricted um, locations and uh, to really have a look at what was being excavated and then to follow through the, the mystery of what was being discovered and then making meaning of that. You could say mystery became history, th- um, you know, through that work. So it's been a very, very fascinating process. And, in fact, uh, as a result of, I guess, the discovery of Qin Shi Huang's tomb and that interest all those years ago, um, that's, you know, in Chinese imperial tombs have become my life's work. So it's been pretty awesome. 
It sounds amazing. Um, we so we are talking, as I said, about uh, Emperor Qin Shi Huang's mausoleum or tomb, and you said that he had access down there to all the different things he would have needed in his living uh, life. When I was looking through the exhibition, um, it said that there was among many, many other things, uh, horse bones found from living horses. That Were the horses buried in the mausoleum or the tomb with the emperor, do you think? Yeah, it's quite a common thing in graves and in tombs to bury horses, bury carriages and even bury uh, people, uh, you know, sacrificed people as to act as servants um, or concubines in the afterlife. So there's been a long history of that. Um, in China, um, but there are many, many pits with many things in them. I can say that a, a five-year, very detailed survey has just been completed at the site, um, and they haven't been able to completely survey the whole site. It's just too vast. Uh, but to date, they've discovered the locations of more than 200 pits. So there are a lot of um, both real things in those pits and also replica um, things mm. like the warriors, uh, but there are real animals, uh, replica animals, and there are real people and replica people, uh, plus a lot of useful objects. Um, and most of those useful objects we, uh, f- that we know about so far are from the pits of warriors, um, so they fall into the category of all sorts of weapons. Mm. Uh, so in terms of this mausoleum, given that it was made for the emperor, did we also find the emperor? Uh, well, the emperor is still there as far as we know, and yeah. he's under the great tomb mound. So there's a colossal pyramid at the site. It's bigger than the uh, great pyramid at um, Giza. Really? Uh, in Egypt, yep. It really, really sh- covers a, a huge area. It's about 350 metres uh, on each side of a huge square pyramid about 47 metres high. So it's really like an artificial mountain. So he's interred, we, um, we assume, under, the, under there uh, in, a, in a pit, uh, which would be like an underground palace. Um, and, recent, this, and recent surveys have discovered that that mound is within a, a big walled compound, so that forms an inner compound, and then a, another wall around that uh, for an outer compound. And if you think about the Forbidden City, for those who've been there, as a mm. kind of a walled compound with a lot of uh, rooms and um, palatial residences and halls, um, those that, that walled area is like that. And interestingly, the warriors are about... Their, their three pits uh, are about 1.5 to 2 kilometres away from that primary mound. Mm. So uh, the best treasures are yet to come. There have been some recent excav- excavations in that inner area. Um, they've found palaces, they've found um, residences, um, altars for worshipping you know, the spirit of the dead ancestor and s- providing for his needs, um, graves of concubines, and also pits of other very, very special figures, um, including entertainers, and one very, very special pit which had 12 figures in it uh, under the emperor, who was very tyrannical and very controlling and really ruled in peacetime as he had in wartime. So he's very, very tough and very harsh ruler. Under him he had three 
known as dukes, and they implement his, implemented his orders with nine chamberlains who were the head of government departments. And then the orders would go out through the around about 40 commanderies around the empire for the military to um, enforce. So one pit uh, in that uh, inner sanctum, that palace area adjacent to the um, underground palace of the emperor himself, uh, had 12 figures, probably the three dukes and nine chamberlains. We're very, very lucky in the NGV exhibition because one of the chamberlains is there. So we've been given a very special selection of not just warriors mm. but of figures from different pits at the um, tomb site. There are really hierarchies of figures and, um, um, you know, quite... Quite, and they're quite extraordinary in the way that they represent the um, the whole life and um, government of Qin Shi Huang's empire. Mm. Well, let's talk about some of those um, warriors. I'm just checking my notes so I can refer to them and maybe describe them visually for people mm. who may not have seen it yet because it, it's only just recently opened. The first figure that we see when we kind of walk in, it's on the left-hand side. And I, I must mention that they're uh, all distinct and separated in a, a very large, clear box with a backing that's a mirror. So you can kind of walk around and see pretty much all the sides of the warriors themselves and the horses that are there. And um, the first figure has these beautiful billowing sleeves and um, a, a beautiful robe and a lot of them do have their hair tied up um, and they're all of, of course very distinctive they have very large shoes flat kind of shoes that are square edged um, but I was really interested in the fact that that one was um, I guess had that beautiful uh, material field or look to it that those billowing kind of um, folds of the of the material that are so you know precise and and stunning i mean for me looking at that sculpture i've seen so many other sculptures across the, the history of art and it, it does seem to be a very advanced um sculpture what is what is that figure in particular representing well in amongst the group that's come from from china uh, we've got different ranks of soldiers from ordinary infantrymen through archers and officers and we're lucky to have two generals. So that figure with the very billowy um, robe that mm. you described um, is one of the two generals in the exhibition. Um, and I, I do want to comment, first of all, though, on the display because yep. you mentioned that. And I have to say that the warriors at the NGV in Guardians of Immortality, um, they're the best I've ever seen the warriors uh, so far and the um, concept of displaying them with mirrors at the back is is wonderful because you get it the, the lighting is is fantastic and you get a wonderful 360 degree view of the warriors mm. plus there's that great multiplying effect so you really get the sense of being amongst the warriors and you get the sense that there are hundreds mm. as or even thousands as there are in the actual tomb pits um the two, the first two figures are both generals, one unarmoured and one armoured, and those are very, very special 
when you go to the exhibition, I recommend anyone have a really close look at their faces. They're about 1.9 metres tall and they're standing on a small pedestal. So they really look down. One of them mm. is extremely ferocious, I find. Um, and you get the, the really the sense that these are individual portraits. Of course, all the warriors are different and each has a different face um, and they have fabulous hairstyles and so on. Um, but these may be individual portraits of very, very high-ranking generals. So one can imagine that these might be um, men, uh, very, very senior fighting men who've accompanied Qin Shi Huang in his battles during the, his rise to emperor. And one of them it looks extremely ferocious. I've, I, when I looked at him, I thought, oh, my goodness, if you were here in real life, you'd look at me and um, just as soon look at me and cut my head off. He was so ferocious. The other one is uh, quite quite different in character and looks very much the strategist. So these are really, really not just individual-looking figures and portraits, but really, really get a sense of the character of the individual. Yeah, I agree. That was one thing that very much stood out to me was they are completely individual and um, perhaps they were, as you said, based on real life people Um, and there's, as you said, two really huge 1.9 metre um, fact terracotta warriors and one of them is armoured and another one is not Mm. and um, it's interesting to see I guess the armoury that was used at the time which there's also a bit of a like model replica um, that they've put together as well with these very intricate kind of tiles that were um, covered over them. What was the thinking behind the types of clothing and, uh, and protection that these soldiers and officials were wearing? Well the stone armour is very very interesting the stone armor was discovered in 1994 and it, uh, I was lucky to I was lucky to visit the visit the uh, excavation of those and it was a huge mystery at the time it took the archaeologists about four years to actually figure out how to reassemble the armor so the pottery figures were very important because many of the pottery figures are wearing armor but it's part of the clay body. Mm. So through that, the archaeologists were able to reconstruct the armour and there are different configurations of armour um, for different um, military roles. So some um, some of the armour, um, it's, it's, it's uh, narrower, some of it's uh, more complete around the body, um, some of it has... Uh, covers the shoulders and likewise with the helmets it was a big mystery how they how they should be um, reassembled so it took about four years to figure that out the armor in the pits uh, they're about um, about 60 suits of armor and about 40 helmets and there's even one suit of armor for a horse they're all made of stone it's a very very um, uh, fine kind of local local stone but in fa- in real life uh, that armor would have been made of leather so it would have been leather plates which would have been um, uh, attached together by perhaps little bronze rivets or stitched together uh, and in this case it's la- it's lasted more than 2,000 years by being replicated in stone mm. so the problem was originally the plates were uh, linked together with bronze wire and all of the bronze wire had disintegrated so it was a, a, a really really difficult job to to reconstruct those well I mean what is striking is the craftsmanship 
of, of the time and, you know, we see these beautiful warriors, but also before we get to see them, we do see everyday objects uh, from different dynasties that are re- relevant to this um, mm. exhibition. And there are those, uh, I guess, belt hooks and different um, items that soldiers would have used. There's also these very beautiful and small uh, arrows that were pretty impressive um, and some daggers. So yep. what, what, are, what were those? kind of things made of because I think the materials are really important to um, the meaning of the objects as well. Those earlier objects are also Qin objects but they're objects from the Qin kingdom rather mm. than the Qin empire. So they're from the spring and autumn period that lasted about 300 years and from the warring states period that lasted for about 250 years before the Qin empire um, rose up to to supremacy. So those those wonderful objects um, are the really belong to the elite. So that was a period of of kings and uh, it was a feudal system. So there were uh, nobles, there were vassals, um, and uh, and it was a period of um, you know sort of small kingdoms. In the spring and autumn period, there were 100 kingdoms occupying that area, all in conflict with each other. So um, the elite were very into power. They were very into um, luxury objects. And there were certain kinds of luxury objects that they took to the tomb with them. They didn't take everything, but they took a lot of objects of uh, of bronze and jade um, and uh Less uh, less wealthy people would take pottery uh, and probably wooden objects with them to the to the tomb. So um, there are very beautiful weapons, um, probably too beautiful to use. Some of them have, have gold handles and they're in, encrusted with jewels. Um, so they may be ritual or ceremonial um, weapons, and also sets of. Uh, uh, dining vessels. So, according to your status in society, um, you could have, um, you know, if you were a, an ordinary official, maybe one set of uh, set of uh, tableware, which might be a, a cooking pot and a, a spice dish and another kind of serving dish. Um, if you were a king, you might have a set of nine. So it was very, very. Uh, the entitlements were really, really closely. Regulated, but there'd be standard things that would be put in. So these dining vessel, cooking and dining vessels, uh, wine and uh, pouring and drinking vessels, water basins and jugs, um, weapons, uh, jewelry, horse, horse accoutrements, um, and so on. So there was sort of a limited range. Not everything for daily life, but certain things that affirmed the person's status in the afterlife. Mm. In terms of the jade pieces that we see, um, what kind of meaning or significance does jade have as a material to the Chinese um, at the time? Well, it's a a very, very precious object. and In fact, jade has been considered more precious than gold. Gold gold only gradually became um, desirable and it's more so in later periods and and the gold gold and golden objects and gold working technology was brought from the West. Um, Jade um, is a rare, it's a rare stone, it's a very very beautiful stone, Um, it's rare in China and comes from 
you know, the outer reaches of China and other places. Mm. Um, so it really was a sort of a, a luxury and very prized uh, object. Yeah, and it, it certainly um, also had or was seen as having the power to prevent the body from decaying and um, thus guaranteeing eternal life, which is pretty important. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So jade objects were put in the orifices at death, you know, to try to, you know, um, thought to preserve the body. And some of the Han princes, so the Han dynasty follow, immediately followed the Qin, uh, had jade suits made for them. Wow with the idea that that would preserve the body or at least the soul. Mm. Um, and so I'm guessing then that there were jade elements that were excavated at the mausoleum site, were there? Well, there may be jade objects. I'm sure we will find jade objects when there's more work done. But yeah. at the moment, uh, we haven't got to those really um, core uh, locations. Mm. So, well, if we think about the fact that they were discovered in 1974 and we're now into 2019, a lot of people might have assumed that, you know, we've already discovered a lot or we'd already discovered the warriors, so what more is there to discover? Clearly there is a lot to, d to d unpack and to actually find, to dig. Um, how many people are working on this and where are they from? Uh, there's, so there is a huge team at the site so um, previously in the, um, the site was under the Shanxi Provincial Institute of Archaeology and then in about, I think, 2005, uh, the Terracotta Warriors site got its own archaeology institute. So there's a huge team of archaeologists working there. They do incorporate archaeologists from all over China and... Um, in terms of some of the concert, there are very good conservation labs there, and they work a lot with um, international partners mm. for the conservation research as well. I can't give you a number on how many people, mm -hmm. but it is a huge operation to, um, you know, continue to do research and survey and dig and conserve uh, at the site. So, really, one of the big issues in contemporary China is how to manage the um, material culture because really the amount of wonderful treasures you could without any doubt and, and completely truthfully say it's an infinite quantity mm. uh, and uh, more and more comes out and uh, then it has to be cared for. Mm. Well, let's just put um, the scale out there in terms of the number of um, terracotta army or pieces that there are. How, how many are there? The official figure is 6,000 and a lot of people were starting to say mm, maybe 8,000 but really we don't know and there may be other pits of warriors, we don't know. So the largest pit which was the one found in 1974, pit number one, um, the estimate is about 6,000 warriors in that pit. About 1,000 have been excavated there I think yeah. um, and about another 1,000 perhaps in pit two and 69 in pit three and then there are other pits with smaller numbers closer to the main part of the tomb so you know look about eight thousand warriors that we know of um but as i said there are more than 200 pits there and uh, only a small number have been opened thus far so and, and not all the pits have been found so mm. uh, there's a lot more excitement to come it is. It sounds amazing. Um, in terms of the 
actual terracotta itself a lot of people might think that that could be a material that could degrade or break um, easily depending on how it's made and how it's preserved what was the kind of condition of the different uh, terracotta army pieces that were found okay well firstly the wonderful thing about pottery is that it does last it doesn't degrade so we're very lucky there Um, the unlucky part is that virtually every single figure uh, was broken. So um, when the Qin dynasty fell, uh, there was a lot of uh, instability, a lot of fighting, um, and a lot of, um, well, it was an opportunity for people to, to vent their anger really at what they'd suffered during the Qin Shi Huang's rule. So a lot of the pits, people knew where the pits were at that time. They were opened and people uh, went in and damaged and they also set fire to the pits. So if you think about the pits, they were covered over with huge um, beams or huge almost tree trunks. So all of that caught fire. Um, Those had been holding up the earth above so that everything above collapsed Um, And that then resulted in the breakage of the warriors. So virtually every single one has been, you could just say, smashed. Mm. So it's a huge operation to reconstruct those. You have to find all the pieces. You have to fit them together. Um, Adhesives needs to be used. Um, And it's a credit to the wonderful conservation work of the Chinese material conservators when you look at the warriors in the exhibition, um, how well presented they are they're the real thing um and they've just been very carefully reassembled and um you know patching over the cracks has been done very very sensitively very Mm. carefully um so that we get the uh complete impression of exactly how they looked when they were made i guess one of the issues in the future and perhaps a good reason we shouldn't uncover everything at the warriors site um is we have to think how will the warriors stand up those that have been reassembled in 50 years' time, uh, what will happen to those adhesives and the um, conservation, you know, how long can the conservation methods that have been used last? Mm, That's an excellent point. Uh, Obviously, conservation and restoration is a very controversial topic in art history and there are a whole range of philosophies or approaches in different eras as well. Um, As you said, these have been very sensitively um, looked after and reconstructed. I mean, looking at those terracotta warriors, I wouldn't have noticed that there were different bits that had had to be reassembled because I couldn't see any of the joining areas. Yeah, the the, um, conservators do an amazing job. They're just so skillful and... um, so care- so careful and well considered in the work that they do so uh you know it's really mm. impressive it's probably a good thing that in china the traditional arts you know of ceramics and you know a whole range of other forms art forms are still very much taught and learned and people become experts in these particular areas that's right there's been a uh, in terms of uh conservation practice there's been a long history of handing down from master to apprentice um so that's been that's a really really strong part of chinese materials conservation um the other part though is materials science and there's a place for uh all for you know 
the cutting edge science too in terms of how to understand objects and how to you know analyze them and plan for their care and conservation so i think we need to put those two things together um and there's a great growth in materials conservation science in china right now so uh we at the grimwade center at the university of melbourne are really happy to be working together with partners in china to support that yeah it would be an honor really it's great yeah it's so wonderful to work with great partners and uh, the wonderful treasures in China. It's just amazing. I can't really imagine. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> it is. It's mind-boggling and um, it's a really wonderful adventure and a great contribution that we can, you know, try to try to make. Yeah. I'm speaking with Professor Tonya Eckfield, who is a Principal Fellow at the University of Melbourne. As you heard there, she's associated with the Grimwade Centre, as well as the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies. And she is also um, based at Northwestern Polytechnical University in Xi'an in China. Um, Let's bring things into the contemporary world, because there is a very contemporary element to this exhibition, and it was very intentional. Um, And we see the work of a wonderful uh, contemporary artist. And I mean, they are pretty like epic pieces that he's created, especially for this exhibition. They're by Sai Guo Chiang. And um, he has done some massive uh, works that are really like, I guess, put around the walls of the exhibitions where the other artefacts are also being uh, displayed and he creates these works out of gunpowder and he explodes the gunpowder and there's this amazing effect and there's also these beautiful um, birds that they starlings I believe that are uh, suspended from the ceiling and also made from a traditional Chinese material of porcelain and using gunpowder as well um What's your understanding of the dialogue, the artistic dialogue between uh, Chinese ancient history and the artefacts of perhaps the Qing uh, dynasty with the contemporary world of China and the art over there? Well, if I start with the warriors, Mm. um, of course they're from the Qin period and they're 2,200 years old and and their discovery taught us a lot or teaches us a lot about that that period the period it was a period that was short-lived and largely unknown before this discovery so now we know so much more but because they were discovered in 1974 they're really part of our world and our lifetime um so they have a contemporary meaning too the warriors themselves are really important symbols in china when i was um you know at uh, Northwestern Polytechnical University in March, I asked my students why are the terracotta warriors important? And of course they firstly said, oh, they teach us about history and ancient society, they said very enthusiastically. Um, and they're in, But they also said, well, they're important for the economy and they're important for tourism and um, they're part of cultural... Uh, sorry, part of cultural diplomacy. And that they also said very importantly they're iconic symbols of China as a secure, safe and strong country. So they're part of national pride and and they have really a life of their own. As we can see, here they are in Melbourne, far away from their original time and place. Uh, Chin Shi Huang never could have imagined that they'd be somewhere like Melbourne's NGV displayed and they were certainly objects that we would never um, have... No one would thought we would see them and 
neither if we had been people in those times would we have been allowed to to see them. So they mm. have very many um, kind of layers of meaning through time. Even in the contemporary art sense, they're almost like a colossal art installation in a way if we want to define them in contemporary art terms. So it's very interesting to have them up against um, in dialogue with um, Tsai, um, Tsai Guo Chung's work. I like to say where the where the present meets the past, there's dialogue. So Tsai has really... He's an artist who's really embracing that concept in his work um, and he's res- he's responding to um, the Terracotta Warriors and Qin Shi Huang's mausoleum site and that whole Lintong area uh, and responding to very deep kind of spiritual concerns um, in his work. So as you mentioned, the 10,000 porcelain birds that have been been uh, exposed to a gunpowder explosion so that gives them their dark beautiful dark pigment um, those hang from the ceiling immediate in the in the room immediately following the warriors and they are swarming in this colossal flock mm. uh, and the flock moves along and it the flock itself forms the uh, shape of uh, Mount Lee uh, in the shadow of which the mausoleum was located. So Tsai himself said that he wanted to recapture the spirit of the warriors and bring them to life. So he chose this huge number of 10,000, a sort of similar huge number to the number of warriors, and there they are in movement and um, flying and, con- you know, continuing to move almost uh, not just through space but through time. So it's a very, very uh, interesting response. Some of these other uh, gunpowder explosions are on... Um, uh, I'm not sure of the of the medium, whether they're canvas or, uh, some, or paper, but uh, there are wonderful explosions resembling uh, pine trees, giving that sense of longevity, almost as symbols of immortality, and others of um, peony flowers, which are very... Uh, in real life, very delicate and short-lived, and sort of remind us of kind of the of rebirth, and mm. um, but also the the delicate uh, and tenuous nature of of our lifetimes. Yeah. It is a a stunning exhibition and I hope that people can get along to both elements of the exhibition. It is one whole exhibition with the Terracotta Warriors, Guardians of Immortality, as well as Sai Guo Chiang's uh, The Transient Landscape. And uh, it is open until October, so you have time to do it. And I want to thank my guest who's been speaking about this, especially the Qing Dynasty, Professor Tonya Eckfield from the University of Melbourne, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Amy. That was my pleasure. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm now having with me in the studio the wonderful Professor Andrew Walter who is, um, well, he comes in here to talk Brexit and UK politics quite a lot. Um, And there is plenty to discuss, especially because we are not really any closer to Brexiting 
leaving the EU, Britain, and uh, and there's a lot more going on. Um, there's so much tumultuous uh, politicking going on domestically, not just in the Conservative Party, but in the Labor Party, the Liberal Democrats, the Scottish National Party. So um, there's a yeah quite a lot of tumult and, um, and chaos going on over there. And to make sense of it all is Andrew Walter, who has the glorious uh, task of doing so, and he's always very clear. So I have no doubt we're going to be better informed after this chat. Hi there, Andrew. Hi, Amy. Well, let's see about that. But, uh, it's not easy to make sense of British politics these days, but that goes for many countries too. Indeed. Well, it's uh, interesting when I'm watching quite nerdily the panel shows on the BBC and other things and there's this hugely heated debate between people about what Brexit means and you know where we are trying to sort all the noise out because there's a lot of extraneous noise that's um, chewed up by the news cycle and you know one development can happen one day and then the next day it's totally different. Um, An example is Boris Johnson and his various statements and speeches and policy proposals um he's the former lord mayor of london he's he was the foreign secretary or foreign affairs our version of a foreign affairs minister until he stepped down over brexit among other things uh so (laughs) ambition yeah above all (laughs) exactly he has been he has been angling through for the prime ministership for years um and clearly Uh, When Brexit happened, we saw the um, UK population decide that they wanted to leave the European Union. Uh, Immediately after that point, we saw Nigel Farage leave politics and say, sorry, see you later, I'll leave you to deal with this mess. Um, And as did Boris Johnson kind of like, oh, I don't want to put my name forward, you know, Hmm. I better not, you know, stick my hat in the ring. And so, of course, Theresa May ended up being the leader of the Tory party and, of course, then the Prime Minister of Britain. Uh, She's now resigned and has stepped away from that role um, at the request of her colleagues. Where, why did she end up stepping down? Like, what really was the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess, in terms of Theresa May and her prosecution of Brexit in trying to get Parliament to sign off on a deal? Well... I mean, essentially, it was Brexit, so more than a straw breaking the camel's back in Theresa May's case, it was a haystack or a whole bunch <laughs> of haystacks that were on, have been on fire yeah. for about three years, ever since uh, that 52-48 uh, referendum result. So a very narrow majority. And I, and I think one of the things that the Tories have been struggling with and any uh, future British Tory Prime Minister, or indeed any Prime Minister will continue to struggle with, is the meaning of Brexit. Um, So when you say that the British people voted for Brexit, it wasn't clear what form uh, Brexit should take. And what's deeply depressing about this current leadership uh, contest among the 10 potential candidates is that we don't seem to have moved on, or they don't seem to have moved on, one jot from 2016. We are still having exactly the same fantastical, delusional debates about, well, you know, if we send a man like Boris Mm. over 
instead of that failed woman, Theresa May, and he thumps on the table and demands a better deal, then those Europeans are just going to cave, aren't they? So, oh, of course they are. So, Andrew. yes. <laughs> um, uh, you know, despite the fact that, of course, Boris's own stint as Foreign Secretary was a, a failed, disaster. disastrous mm. stint, he made fun of Africans, he made fun of Muslim women. He talked about Africa as a blot on the landscape, but not a blot on Britain's conscious, uh, conscience and all sorts of obnoxious things. So, yeah, and, you know, by all accounts from his colleagues, who don't have, in many cases, a great deal of respect for Boris, he was completely underprepared and consistently underprepared as Foreign Secretary mm. in Cabinet behind the scenes. So he's not just a buffoon in public. He is a buffoon, it seems, when he has held some of the highest offices of the British state. So that's what we're facing. We're facing a front-runner in Britain um, for the not just the Tory leadership, deeply popular among the uh, so-called Blue Rinse set of 120,000 or so die-hard pro-leave conservatives, and he'll probably win, unfortunately, but we are not any closer to a, a, a Brexit that's realistic or achievable. Well, yes, and there is a famous Australian political strategist who is working with mm. Boris Johnson, Linton Crosby. <laughs> Behind the scenes and unofficially, mm. Linton, yes. And I think a lot of people are suggesting that will be a bit of a, a game changer and give him the edge over the other nine candidates. Um, we should mention some of who they are. I mean, some are yeah. known to us. There's Michael Gove, who's probably a similarly high-profile candidate, um, is the Environment Secretary. There is also uh, Sajid, is it Sajid Javid? Yeah. Yeah. And he's the Home Secretary, which is a pretty significant role, which uh, Theresa May used to perform. Uh, There's former Leader of the House, Andrea Leedsom. And I believe, did she run last time? Yes, I believe so. I think so, yes. Uh, And I think there's two women. Uh, There's also Esther McVeigh, who is... uh, former Work and Pensions Secretary and also um, another high-profile one is Dominic Raab, who was the Brexit Secretary. And a lot of these um, candidates are former because some of them did resign because they Mm. disagreed with Theresa May and her approach to Brexit. And as you've highlighted there, there is a massive divide in the Conservative Tory party. And we, you know, last time discussed that some of the Tories left to join an independent crossbench. Um, The, I guess the leavers have stopped now uh, so far of who knows what will happen though um who do you think if it wasn't boris johnson are there any others that you think are strong candidates in terms of their uh i guess ability like experience for the job because i mean it would be nice to see some a meritocratic appointment of course we're living in a Um, a world where that doesn't normally happen. But are there any other candidates who would be well qualified for this job? Well, I think so. And um, I'm I'm forgetting in that long list if you mentioned Jeremy Hunt. Not Um, yet, no. Foreign Secretary Secretary as well. So there are people, including Jeremy Hunt, who have, in contrast to Boris, quite a good track record uh, of being able to manage important ministries. And Jeremy Hunt, I believe, was in the health ministry before uh, becoming Foreign Secretary. 
secretary. He has, uh, however, of course, had his own gaffes on Brexit. He made a stupid speech last year at uh, the Tory party conference when he tried to out-Brexit the Brexiteers. So most of these people are all over the place, um, but some of them have, uh, I think, more classic credentials than Boris, who's, you know, basically a TV personality, uh, journalist, uh, who's bumbled his way into... Top, a top job, uh, mm. foreign secretary in the past, and as we said before, not a that wasn't a pretty sight. Uh, but uh, most of the other candidates uh, have more qualifications, with some exceptions. Some of them are really just throwing their hat into the ring. Some of the younger people, they don't have much of a chance, uh, really probably to gain recognition and potentially future cabinet jobs. I'm afraid to say that I think the w- the two women on the list are very unlikely to get it. So mm. I think they're probably there more for tokenism uh, than anything else. They didn't want a mantle of 10. Um <laughs> And um, the the I think if anyone before a couple of days ago were forced to choose the likely second candidate, so just a little on the process first. Yes. What happens first is that the parliamentary party, uh, over through a series of votes over the next week or so, will whittle the list down to two, and two candidates will then go forward to that diehard Conservative Party membership of mm. 120,000 people or so, most of whom are old and pretty conservative, of course, um, and who are all pretty keen Brexiteers and would favour uh, no deal if it came to that by October 31st. So um, the serious candidate, alternative candidate, before a couple of days ago would have been Michael Gove. Yes. Uh, but Michael Gove has a reputation for being unreliable. Of course, so does Boris. Um, but Michael Gove is a bit more serious, a better parliamentary performer, better briefed. He was the one who stabbed Boris in the back um, in the 2016 leadership contest and opened the way for Theresa May. So Michael Gove was the more serious candidate, but then it was conveniently by someone revealed mm. uh, that uh, forthcoming in, a, in an about-to-be-published book, uh, his history of cocaine uh, use, uh, more than 20 years ago, that in itself was probably survivable. After mm. all, Boris himself has also admitted to having the odd sniff Apparently it didn't affect him, Boris said, uh, perhaps because Boris is slightly out there um, in normal times. <laughs> um, but any case, in any case, many of them are now owning up to drug use. Uh, it seems the whole party to me is on some sort form of psychedelics. It's uh, amazing. So, but that drug use and the fact that Michael Gove back in 1999 was writing articles complaining about middle-class users of A-class drugs uh, hasn't done a great deal for Michael Gove over the past two days. So it's left Jeremy Hunt uh, now looking like uh, the the likely, at this stage, the likely second candidate after Boris. It's pretty amazing. I think I saw a tweet that said... Um, seeing all these Tory candidates come out and um, deny taking Class A drugs makes me think that maybe they've all been smoking marijuana. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think there are. I think the whole lot, including the uh, the, the party membership, are on magic mushrooms because they yeah. they believe they continue to believe that, as, as I say, just going back to to Brussels 
and thumping the table yeah. is going to lead leave Brussels to fall over and say, "Oh, we didn't mean it." You know, you can yeah, we'll take the backstop out and we'll yeah. screw the uh, the Irish. the Irish, which is not going to happen. It's not going no. to happen. There's the a deal cu- has been negotiated, the as deal. they say, and and they are very likely to say in a couple of weeks, Europe collectively, yes. that. That's the deal. Take it or leave it. We might tweak the political agreement a mm. little bit, but we are not going to abandon the Irish. That's what Europe is about. So get real. And Boris is not getting real. There are a couple of candidates, younger candidates, um, in the race uh, who have uh, Rory Stewart, above all, among them, trying to say that some of Boris's proposals, like, you know, we'll just leave yeah. if we don't get a great deal and we won't pay the 35 billion bill, pound Pounds, bill, yes. we will effectively default on that debt, that none of this is realistic and it just makes no deal and, a cra- and, and, a, and an awful crash exit from the EU more likely and indeed what it makes above all more likely because Parliament will reject such a crash exit. Mm. It makes a general election more likely in which Jeremy Corbyn might win. Wow, that escalated quickly, didn't it? And (laughs) when we talk about Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, lots of people are saying that Labor is in a very, very, very difficult position they're very unhappy about. And we saw before Theresa May left that there was an attempt, whether it was a serious attempt or not, to have a compromise between the Tories and Labor so they might get a deal through the Parliament. Um, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't really... uh, I mean, he's very ambiguous or ambivalent about Brexit. And as you've said in the past, he um, I don't think he's a big fan of the EU, is he? No, no, he sees it as, you know, a capitalist plot. Yeah. Um, and he wants socialism in one country. So he's quite happy to ride the Brexit bandwagon. And in particular, if it's a Tory Brexit bandwagon. So there will be costs, there will be very deep costs, including for the 70% plus Labour membership voters uh, who don't want Brexit. Uh, but he can blame that, those on costs Tories. on the Tories, mm. if it's clearly a Brexit uh, that's driven by the Conservative Party, but uh, at the same time achieve more what he would call policy space for a socialist alternative in Britain. Yeah, well, clearly Labour doesn't want to have its flags tied to the demise of Britain through a no-deal Brexit no. um, or even a deal Brexit. No. I mean, it seems like, yeah, the, there's a reticence to engage. And there's a lot of debate within the Labor Party about, you know, putting this back to the people, which we've seen on, over and over, you know, whether it's a separate people's vote to say, really, now that you know what Brexit is, do you want it or not? Mm. People would say that. Some people would say it's not democratic to put it back again. Others would say if Parliament passes a deal, then we need to get the people to sign off on it and that's a different kind of people's vote um what do you think about that other option about putting things back to the british people whether it's through a referendum or even a general election Mm. well frankly i think it's ridiculous to to argue that um putting putting a deal with specifics in contrast to the utterly vague referendum of mid 2016 back to the british people to approve or disapprove that in any se- that, that in 
any sense can be undemocratic, I think, is just a ridiculous mm. argument. Um, but it's an argument, of course, that has some rhetorical power, particularly among those people who voted and are, and are strong pro-leavers. Now, that said, um, Jeremy Corbyn is in a difficult spot, uh, in a less difficult spot than the incumbent Tory party government because they're the ones after all who have to make policy choices and so far they've been unwilling to make hard choices uh, with the exception in a sense of Theresa May but her failed premiership um, was well her premiership was dead when her deal um, clearly could not pass parliament <laughs> no matter how many times she tried. Mm. Um, as for Corbyn, he's in the more privileged position of not having to make policy. So he's sitting on a fence, but it's a very sharp and somewhat painful fence to be sitting on. Um, people thought after the European elections of a few weeks back now that Labour really would now, under Corbyn's leadership, be forced to choose a much clearer pro, potentially, you know, shifting more into the Remain camp and one that would favour either a general referendum or a second, a general election or a second referendum. Um, then came along the Peterborough by-election of a couple of days ago. Uh, a Labour MP uh, basically breaks the law, mm. has to stand down. They have a Peterborough by-election, which Nigel Farage's Leave Party, Brexit Party, uh, was expected to win but failed to do so, just pipped at the post by uh, the Labour candidate close to Corbyn. So many people are now concluding that that signal that mm. Labour can win, even if just, may mean that Corbyn's stance is sustainable, so he will continue to sit on the fence, and that the biggest danger from Nigel Farage is posed not to the Labour Party but to the Tory party. He took most votes away from the pro-leave Tories in the Peterborough by-election. So Corbyn can use this result to say, I don't need to choose. I don't need to choose. I can continue to sit on the fence and, you know, a referendum could be dangerous for Labour. Mm. Who is taking votes on... Like from Labor, do you think any of them are the Liberal Democrats? Perhaps? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the Liberal Democrats have uh, almost, you know, I mean, they were almost dead yeah. politically at the end of the coalition government of 2010 to 2015, having got into bed with David Cameron's Conservatives and essentially adopted most of their policies. Yeah, they were completely destroyed mm. under Nick Clegg's leadership electorally. And particularly because they supported austerity measures that weren't very That's popular. Right. Yeah, so yeah. It didn't, that didn't help either. Um, but um, they have come back from the dead because there is a very powerful Remain constituency, that 48% yeah. of people. There are many people who are fed up with the Tories, of course. Um, so it's unclear how many Remainers are in the British electorate now, but it's quite possible that it's just over 50%. Mm. So many of those votes have drifted away from the Labour Party, given Jeremy Corbyn's fudging, to clear, to clear pro-Remain parties like the Liberal Democrats, who've come back significantly, as well as the Greens, uh, some of the Welsh and Scottish parties as well. Yeah, it seems like that it's beneficial to actually come out with a strong view, yeah. you know, remain or leave. It doesn't really matter in one sense because the Brexit party under Nigel Farage has a very clear leave message and yeah. Liberal Democrats a very clear remain. That's right. And, and so I think this is reflective of the growing polarisation 
and in effect the monolithic nature of British politics increasingly mm. dividing along leave remain lines um, the clear strategy of Nigel Farage along with his allies and above all uh, leave.eu uh, that campaign during uh, the Brexit referendum which continues um, uh, has a website and a movement uh, financed by Aaron Banks and friends, yes. all sorts of dodgy people mm. uh, who are being investigated. But their clear strategy was to undermine the position of the Conservative Party um, that between Farage and Aaron Banks's Leave EU movement, they would create a so-called pincer movement that would undermine the Conservatives and push the Conservatives firmly into the pro-Leave camp. That's happening. Yes. They've won yeah. that debate. Well, in terms of the uh, Conservative Tory party, what is the rough proportion of Tories who are currently in Parliament who are that hardline Brexit, you know, we can leave without a deal and, I don't, you know, to hell with it all? Well, we saw this through uh, May's various failed attempts over the past few months to push her deal through Parliament. It satisfied neither the softer so-called One Nation Tories uh, who are Remainers um, to a large extent. That includes the Speaker of the House, by the way, John Burko. It includes some of uh, the, the members of the current British Cabinet who voted Remain. Mm. That includes Theresa May, of course. I think Jeremy Hunt also voted Remain, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, would Alex, uh, Hammond, uh, would also, I think, have voted Remain, if I remember well. So there are a whole bunch of uh, Tories uh, who are in that moderate centre. We saw during May's various failed attempts that there was a hard core of anything like 20 to 60 people who may come October, the end of October, be willing to move into the let's just get out of Europe, whatever, um, mm. and we will take the economic and political consequences, we will bear those costs, we will lose, potentially risk losing our traditional business uh, support base. Uh, Boris famously said F-U-C-K, business, mm -hmm. you know, we don't care. Let's leave British business behind. If they are Remainers, we don't want them anymore. Now, of course, many of that sort of that um, traditional One Nation British Tory uh, bloc would be horrified at the prospect of losing business as a key support yeah. group for this, after all, centre-right party. Well, it seems very Trumpian to be, you know, that cavalier about yeah. the economy. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so they are in the process of undermining their traditional claim to be the party of economic competence. Yes. We've heard that before, Australian mm. listeners, haven't we? It's the centre-right parties that can get the economy right. Now, the more that Boris speaks of defaulting on the, 20, on the $39 billion debt, the more he talks about leaving and to hell with the, co the economic and political consequences, the more business people are becoming deeply disillusioned with mm. the trajectory of the Conservative Party. Wow. Just finally, Andrew, before I have to let you go, um, Jeremy Corbyn has been a polarising figure in the Labor movement. Yeah. Uh, a lot of his colleagues didn't want to serve in his shadow cabinet. Um, mm. Where are we at in terms of Labor's relationship to its leader? 
Well, the Deputy Leader, Tom Watson, pretty clearly talking in terms of we need a second referendum, uh, would clearly like Labor to shift more towards the political centre to gain back those votes that were lost by the rejection of Blairite, Brownite politics. There's a whole bunch, as I said, there's a clear majority of the Labor uh, electorate, the traditional electorate, that would favour Remain. And yet... Corbyn hangs on because he's very popular among some of the young millennial socialist types. Mm. He has a very hardcore committee behind him who've engaged in some fairly Trumpian politics, effectively threatening deselection for more moderate traditional parliamentarians. And as you mentioned earlier, a bunch of the moderates, a few of them anyway, moved into that change new K, that new party, that seems to be a failed enterprise. Mm. So so because of that failure, I think, that stemmed uh, the, te- the, the possibility that more people would, would f- exit this, this sinking socialist Corbynite ship. Um, and it's made it more likely, I think, that Jeremy Corbyn can hang on while the Tories continue to implode. Oh, it's kind of amazing, really, to, to think you it's can great. have a, a leader of a yeah. party that most people don't want. Yes, <laughs> that's a Shakespearean tragedy on uh, you know from all dimensions. It is. I, that's why I like talking about it so much, um, mm. and I really like talking about it with you, Andrew. So I thank you so much for coming in to uh, update us, and hopefully we can talk about it more. Yeah, pleasure. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Amy. Yeah, great to see you again. You too. Yeah. I've been speaking with Professor Andrew Walter, who is based at the School of Social and Political sciences at Melbourne University and uh, he does some great work on UK politics but also so many other topics and he's just uh, released a book which you can look up. He was in London only a couple of months ago. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.